So um, I work primarily with kids, and I've been teaching kids for a while. And one of the things I've learned is it's usually a good idea to throw at them something that'll get their attention, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to tie in later, just to get them flowing with you, right? So for example, sharks. Let's talk about sharks. So there's this video going around right now. And in it, there's a shark called a basking shark. And basking sharks are the world's second largest shark. They're second only to the, um, the whale shark. And just like the whale shark, it eats um, shrimp and it eats um, krill or whatever. And so it's got this gaping mouth. That's like what's definitive of it. It's got this huge gaping mouth that's just always open. And it just hangs out along the surface of the water. That's how it got its name. The basking shark just basks in the sun and hangs out by the surface and just catches all this krill and plankton. And that's what it eats. And they can grow to be 30 feet long, just huge sharks. The coolest thing about them is they're 100% non-aggressive towards humans. So people who live in an area where basking sharks frequent can actually swim with them and hang on to them. And it's really cool. And so there's this video that's going viral right now where there's two guys and they're on a boat and they're in an area where there's always basking sharks and they see one. And there's just this huge fin out in the water. And they're like, oh my gosh, we got to get to that. So they get their boat as close as they can and they decide, I want... I don't want it to swim away from me, so I'm going to jump as close as I can to try to grab hold of this shark so I can swim with it for a little bit. So he takes a running jump and just hurls himself into that water. He lands within five feet of this thing and just splashes. The shark gets spooked and dips down underwater. And you know, like anyone, if you're going to jump in towards a shark and then you open your eyes in the water and you can't see anymore, that'd freak you out freaked him out. So he turns around and he goes, that was a bad idea and starts swimming back towards the boat. He and his buddy are laughing and his friend is recording, not him anymore, but you can hear them laughing. He's recording the giant dark shadow of the shark in the water because it's deeper now. And it comes and it does this big figure eight because I think the shark is going, what the heck was that? Like I got to figure out what that was. And as it comes around, you see the shark. It's coming up close to the surface again and it doesn't have the mouth. And that is not a basking shark. That's a full-on great white shark. And so this thing comes by, and the guy who's filming, you hear a little bit of fear. His laugh stops. And he goes, that's a, that, and he just, he doesn't want to freak his friend out, doesn't want to make him start splashing, make it more, no, he goes, that's not a basking shark, dude. And just films it. And then his buddy luckily gets out in, in time, and he goes, what do you mean it wasn't a basking shark? He goes, it wasn't a basking shark, dude. And that's where the video ends. Because it's like, you got to see. <laughs> that's not something you jump in with. So he had, based on his, where he was at, based on his, all the things that had been told him, all the things he had seen online, that this was a smart thing to do, to jump in with the shark. He had this presupposition that this is going to be okay. That's not an okay thing to do. Right? And you and I know that coming from, I'm not getting in with a shark whether or not it's a basking shark. Right? So we all, all that's to say is we all have presuppositions that we bring with us into every situation where we have in a worldview, we have an idea of how things work. We have an idea of how we should treat our spouses that's culturally based or traditionally based. We have an idea of how we approach God. We have an idea about how we do everything based on all the things we've heard, all the things we've experienced, and all the things that we've seen. And we often 
we always bring those presuppositions with us into God's word, and we can end up somewhere different than what the author originally meant. Because the book that we're studying tonight is written to the Hebrews. It's not written to the cavemen. If it's written to the cavemen, you and I could bring all of our presuppositions to it because it's written to you and me in the time that we're at, but it's written to the Hebrews. So you and me as an American audience, we bring like a humanistic worldview into it. Where for us, for a lot of Americans, it's really difficult for us to deal with the miracles that are in the Bible. And we want to try to rationalize them out. Like, okay, what really happened there? Like one that I'm guilty of is in 1 Samuel, you have this story where the Israelites go to war with the Philistines. And the Philistines just crush them. And so the Philistines get the Ark of the Covenant back to their home base. And they're like, yeah, we conquered their God. We won. And two things happen. One of them is rats just infest everything. They're just everywhere. They're on the food. They're in the houses. No one can sleep. It's miserable. The second thing that happens is the Bible says that there began to, began to be tumors all over the uh, parts. You know what I mean? And that's uncomfortable and not good. And so I was reading a really interesting commentator who said, yeah, it's not tumors because of the rats. See, the rats had bubonic plague, and it's not tumors, it's their lymph nodes on their <laughs> swelling up, and that's what's going on, which is, okay, maybe that is what happened. And just because you rationalize it now, you actually diminish God's work by half, because now God didn't do both, God just did one and there was a byproduct. Do you see how that worked? And you kind of do that with Jesus, too. If you start to rationalize through any of his miracles and say it's anything other than God entered creation and is doing something only God can do, you start to take away the divinity of Jesus away, and you start to subtract from him whenever you try to add our scientific worldview to it. It's the same with demons and evil spirits. Like, we as people who have grown up in a society that want to be able to prove everything and, and not have an immaterial world to influence us, we look at the texts that talk about ancient spirits or demons and we say, well, that's mythological. That's just how they would express evil in the world. Or it's psychological. That person just thought he saw that. And it actually takes away from the entire narrative of the Bible, which is saying, no, there's a real war. There's a real enemy seeking to steal to kill, and to destroy. So we all have presuppositions, whether they're cultural or emotional or political. A fun thing is if you want to find out your political presuppositions or your biases, just turn on the latest debate. And whenever you start screaming, that can help pinpoint, you know, stop that. So <laughs> Hebrews chapter five, we're going to be tonight is the author's going to be working through some of the presuppositions that the Hebrews have. They have a way that they believe you approach God. They have a way that we do life. That's been traditional, generational. Their fathers have done it over and over. This is how you do life. This is what we do. And now everything has fundamentally been changed because of the work of Jesus. And so chapter five is going to cover so much of that. And so over the last few weeks, we talked about Jesus being better than the angels in the Torah, Jesus being better than Moses and the promised land, and now we're looking at Jesus is better than the priestly system. And Dan Vidlack left for us last week the last chapter, or last paragraph of Hebrews chapter 4. So if you just flip a little back, we're going to start at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, because it all covers the same topic. <clears throat> chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, 
we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but on who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you and I read that, and that's not really an issue. I don't have a problem with any of that. This is a huge paradigm shift for Hebrew people, people who have grown up where to be considered a man, you have to have the Torah, the first five books of the Bible memorized. This is a big, big thing. So it starts off by saying we have a great high priest. The high priest was someone who would mediate between God and man. So Israel was able to come close to the temple where God is, but only one person would be able to go into the Holy of Holies, go before God and say, hey, we've made mistakes. Here's gifts, here's sacrifices. I wanna make atonement for these people so that we can be right together. You will be our God, we will be your people, we'll stay in your covenant. Offering sacrifices for sins, and when he does that, he also has to offer his own sacrifices for himself. So he's in full view of his struggles, his failures. He knows where he sits. And so verse 14 pairs that, not only with is he our great high priest, but he's also the son of God. And depending upon your worldview and depending upon how you view God, a big issue is, well, can God really understand my pain? Does God really get it when I fail and when I fall short? Does God really understand what it's like to struggle with addiction? Does God really understand that when I messed up and I blew it and I'm embarrassed and I feel ashamed, I feel ostracized from my family, I'll never be able to make that up. Does God really get and understand my struggles? Does he get the struggles that I've struggled? Because the high priest would be able to do that. He's man, he's failed. But can Jesus, can God? And for any other religion, I don't know how you, you deal with that other than no. But we have a unique situation where the Bible tells us that Jesus, when he gets baptized, what immediately happens in Luke chapter four is he gets tempted by Satan in every way. Satan baits the hook with anything that would get you and me to fail. All the classic things. I'll give you status. I'll give you power. I'll give you anything. Anything that would make you go, well, I might, I might obey you then. Get food. I mean, he's been fasting for 40 days. He's starving. Satan does everything he can to bait the hook, and Jesus doesn't take it. And so then for us, we go, well, so he didn't sin. He didn't fall short. Does he really get it when I fall short? Well, here's the best illustration I can think of. If you know Chad Hansen, his bicep at its smallest point is as thick as my torso. Okay. So at his gym, I think that they actually measure. And if you don't meet a certain criteria, you can't come in. So I wouldn't even be allowed in his gym, but let's imagine he invited me. So we go to his gym and Chad gets down and at his gym, they have two fully loaded semi trucks attached to a bar, right? And so he gets behind that bar and goes for it, and it's, it's heavy. And then come, full extension, then with full control comes back and sets it back to rest. And I'm like, man, I wanna do that. And he goes, go for it. And I go there, and what I'm met with is a completely immovable object. Like, it might as well be welded to, like, it's not going anywhere. And so I go there, and I try my best, and I push against it, and I struggle, and I come up, and I go, yeah, I couldn't do it. 
do I really understand how heavy that is? I understand it's pretty heavy. I understand I can't do it, but I can't really grasp how heavy that was. But if I go to Chad and I go, man, that was really heavy, he'd say, I know. Oh, man, that's tough. He'd go, I get it, right? He fully respects the weight of the bar. I just get a, there's no way I could do it. So yeah, by Jesus overcoming every temptation without failing, that's the same picture that we get. Does God really understand what it's like when we fail and fall short? Totally. And so as our high priest, he's someone that when we can come to and go, God, I blew it, and get that same response. Yeah, I get that. I get how you could do that. I get how tempting that bait was. I understand why you ended up in the position that you were in. You never end up with, a, with Jesus going, you did what? You, you did what again? I didn't die for that one. You never get that with Jesus. He has an unequal, unequaled capacity for empathizing with you and me, knowing exactly where we've been, exactly where we've come from. Because of what Jesus has gone through, he understands our hurts and our frustrations. And now you and me can do something entirely unique that the Hebrews would never have dreamed of. Because we just got done with Exodus. The temple is built. Israel is allowed to draw near to God. That's where they're allowed to be. And there were certain priests who were allowed to go into the temple. But only the high priest was allowed to go in to the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant would be. And there was a little throne surrounded by cherubim on it. Only he was allowed to go in there and make sacrifices and atonement and go straight into God's presence. But you and me, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive, receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Totally paradigm shifting there. Now with boldness, you and me get to approach the throne of grace. Now with boldness, you and me can enter in to God's presence. And you and I, as Americans who have been influenced by how religion works by a Christian background, we don't really think much of that. Because our presuppositions is, yeah, that's fine. But for Hebrews, sinful man cannot approach holy God. That's not how it works. In fact, any time that you would have a prophet who would enter the presence of the Lord, like Isaiah, they'd say, woe is me. Or Job, after God answers him chapter after chapter, what Job says about himself is, I despise my life because I'm in full witness of how broken I am. And so what the author is saying is, now with the coming of a faith in Jesus, there's this mental problem of, well, I don't have a high priest anymore. So who, who do I go to? What do I need to do? And the author is trying to show us, you have a superior representative. You have one who understands everything that you've been through, everything you could possibly go through, and now you can boldly approach him and go to God as not something so distant from you who doesn't understand, but literally as your father. There's one person in my life who boldly, for the last 365 days, comes into my room between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. to tell me nonsense as my daughter. And she could do that whenever she wants, and she does it whenever she wants, right? And she just comes in boldly. She's like, I need water. I have to go to the bathroom. She comes in and tells me she has to go to the bathroom. I'm like, then just go. But she does. She comes in, and that's, in a less trivial sense, the approach that you and I now have access to God, which the Hebrews would never have dreamed of. So there's some objections. 
One of the objections, which is we're going to tackle a little bit tonight, but we're going to really talk about in chapter 7, and so I won't spoil it entirely, is Jesus can't be the high priest. And the reason is, is we just finished Exodus 29 a few weeks ago. He's not from Aaron's tribe. He's not a Levite. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. So that, that's a problem. So how does that make sense? And so we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight, but mostly in chapter 7. So we're going to tackle presupposition after presupposition tonight. So in chapter 5, the first thing you're going to see is three things. The first one is, if you put them in like A, B, C category, A is the high priest function to make atonement. B is his ability to sympathize with sinful people. And C is he's called by God. And so as we read chapter 5, we're going to see A, B, C as it would relate to human high priests. And then when we talk about Jesus, we're going to tackle them in reverse order. We're going to talk about C, he's called by God, he's able to sympathize, and his function to make atonement for all. So that's what we're going to look at in chapter 5. Let's start verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So you and I couldn't come to God like we talked about. He's taken from among men, but he's ordained to come before God. He offers gifts and sacrifices so that God and man can continue to have relationship with each other. That's his function. That's what he does. It's his primary role. Verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. He understands what it's like to be tempted because he's a broken human too. The high priest who was a man, not Jesus in this spot. He's a man. He understands what it's like to fail. He understands what it's like to fall short, to be, do stupid stuff and get totally embarrassed and shamed and feel powerless, all that. He gets it. Verse three, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. High priests are just people. They're just men. He'd fall too. And so he would, like in the illustration with Chad, be like, yeah, I, I get how you could do that. But he would never fully understand because there's issues that you struggle with that I don't struggle with. And sometimes when people come to me with those things and go, man, I'm just struggling with this, part of me just goes, Really? That's an issue? For, okay, I guess that's an issue. And so there's that little bit of barrier where you, you don't necessarily struggle with the thing that your husband struggles with. Your husband doesn't struggle with the thing that your daughter struggles with. You and me are all going to have different struggles, different way that Satan approaches us and baits the hook. But our God doesn't have that issue. Our God is, understands no matter what you've been through, where you've been at. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So this role would be for a Levite. They're from the tribe of Aaron. It would be heretical. So all, the oldest son, and then it would be for life. And at some point in the second century BC, that changed where it started to become something where people could be voted on or be raised up to. And it eventually became something where people were appointed to be rulers over Israel, more to keep order than to really worry about God's man's approach to God. And that happens really with a lot of things that men take that's really good from God and decide that we're going to put a hierarchy in it and appoint people in power over these things. I mean, any, anything, even really good things that's supposed to serve as like a spiritual organism can become a 
mess of political hierarchy. Like there's, this happens with major church denominations where they're no longer about Jesus, but they're about politic. Like driving around town, I saw a sign from a major church denomination put it out across America for all their churches to put out, and it just lists all the things we're about, and not one is Jesus. About everything else, but Jesus isn't on the list, which should be like up there, you know, maybe towards the top. But we do that, and it made me really think about in 2020, there's so many things that we could put on our list that we get passionate about that we'll fight for, that come up often, COVID and your response to it. Are we loving others? Are we doing that? Are social justice or justice issues in general or even political issues and be very passionate about them. And you can be right and you know you're right. And we live in an age where it's really easy to blast those things and let everyone know how right you are, right? Well, I was reading this book about a, by a missionary who ended up moving his whole family to Iraq in the late 1990s, got really involved with all these Muslim families and spending dinner with them, getting to know their families, their families are getting to know them. He's outspoken about his faith as a believer, which is dangerous, but he's getting really close with these people. And in 2001, the 9-11 attacks happened. And so he's over there and the agenda that was being driven by the media over there, they were discussing it at the dinner table. And these two Muslim friends that you have are explaining to him, oh no, your government did that to yourself to start a war with us to steal our oil. And so now he was writing in his book, it was really hard for him to bite his tongue because he knows you're wrong and I'm right. I know that the story is, that's not the real story. You don't understand what's actually going on, but he had to make a decision. Am I going to close the door that I have with this person about Jesus over something that really matters to me right now? This is really important to me right now. But in 10 years, is this going to be really important to me right now? Because if he accepts Jesus and his kids accept Jesus, in 10 years, the door about Jesus is going to really matter. Is his opinion on what happened because of what was in the news at that time really going to matter? So for me, I was just thinking about we live in an age where it's so easy to cancel people. You disagree with me, you post something I don't like, I'm cutting you out. And even if you've gone along about everything, you post one thing, just I'll block you all in front of you, you won't even have to know about it. I think we as believers have to be really careful about the things that we choose to be about. Because you could lose the door to talk about Jesus so quickly. Don't lose it over something trivial. Don't lose it over something that's not going to matter in eight years. Don't worry about something that's not going to matter in 20 years. Jesus has mattered for the last 2,000 years. Let's keep it about him. Verse 5, we're going to talk about Jesus. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm 2. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is talking about Jesus being called by God. And this is the, another reference of this guy, Melchizedek, which it seems like it's totally out there. And I'm going to leave most of this for chapter seven, but part of me just can't help it because I think it's really interesting and exciting. So there's this just weird, obtuse reference to this guy that, that most of us never heard of. Well, here's the thing. If you are a Hebrew person and you're like, I don't know if I can accept Jesus because he's from the tribe of Judah and I need my high priest to be from the tribe of Levi, 
He's saying, well, there's this other guy, Melchizedek, way before the Israelites were born with Abraham. And in this story, you have Abraham. He's at war with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's battle weary. It's been intense. He takes his whole army and they're marching through a, a land that's not theirs to a land that God has promised that they will inherit. And on the way, a man approaches them. And this man is a king. And in chapter seven of Hebrews, it translates the name of the place that he was king of to he's the king of a place called peace. So he's the king of peace. And he's also a high priest. He's the only person in the Bible who's a king and a high priest. And he approaches these battle-weary people who are headed to a promised inheritance by God, approached by the king of peace, and what does he offer them? He gives them bread and wine. And I'm, I'm reading that just going, bro, like, come on. The nuance and the foreshadowing of the Bible, how rad is that? That all the way back in Genesis, you have this clear picture of Jesus, that we are the way the Bible portrays it is we're in a spiritual battle and that we are battle-wearied people going through life, expecting an inheritance from God. We have a place that we're headed and Jesus meets us right where we're at and what he offers us for rest and for hope and to sustain us is his body and his blood to say, I've done it. I've done the work. I've got your back. You fail, you mess up, whatever. I've got you. Just for me, I was just spent this last week going, how brilliant is the Bible? How nuanced is it that it would have that little bit of foreshadowing for us to look back on and go, I get that. And so it's not even about Levi. Way before Levi was this guy Melchizedek and God saying, yeah, we'll, we'll go after him. It's an order greater than Aaron's. So verse seven, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. So this is a reference for you and me to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is weeping. He's crying. His soul is heavy. Let me read for you real quick Luke 22, verses 42 through 46, where Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You have this very interesting moment where Jesus right here, doesn't want to go to the cross. Where Jesus says, if there's any other way, God, let's not do it this way. That's why the cross is so incredibly offensive. Because what it's saying is, if there was any other way to get to God, if there was any amount of effort or sincerity that you could have, or good work, or thing you could memorize, or sacrifice that you could bring to God, if there was any effort, any work you could do, Jesus wouldn't have to go to the cross. By Jesus dying on the cross, what we learn is this is the only way. This is the one way. And the father heard him. And the father was able to save him and deliver him from the cross, but he didn't. And so a lot of us, I think we have this presupposition of God where God is wrathful 
and he's angry at sinners and he's angry at sin. But Jesus comes in and he goes, hold on, I got it. I'll work this out. We'll make a plan. I got this. But right here, look at verse eight. Because, oh, I'm so sorry. Verse eight, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You have Jesus saying, I don't want to do this. And God saying, yeah, this is the only way. This is what we're going to do. This is going to be hard. It's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be shameful. It's going to hurt. It's going to fundamentally change everything about you. Jesus not only experienced physical death, but death in the Bible is talking about separation from God, something that Jesus had never experienced in his life, never wanted to ever experience, total destruction. That's where Jesus is headed to right now. And he's saying, I I don't want to do that anymore. But here's the really important part. He said, not my will, but your will be done. And so God, the Father now, he doesn't get portrayed for us as a wrathful, angry God who's coming after sinners, but he's a loving Father, willing to make the supreme sacrifice of giving his only son so that you and me can come into fellowship with him, so we can become one with him. And what's interesting to me is Jesus lived the perfect life, did everything correctly, did everything right, and a lot of us have another presupposition where we think, if only I could do the right things, live righteously, come to God the right way, then he'll have to give me all the things that I want, right? If I do good things, God is going to be forced to give me what I decide is good things. And the problem is, you start to treat God like he's a genie. Like if you just rub the lamp just right, maybe he'll come out and grant you all of your wishes. But what you see right here is Jesus is begging, crying, in full agony, in distress, and God goes, yeah, that's, that's not what we're going to do. But what do you do with Bible verses where Jesus says, ask, and it will be done? What do you do with that? You have to look in the context of who Jesus is talking to. Jesus in that moment wasn't talking to the multitudes. It wasn't when he's on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talked to his disciples, and it's followed immediately with, if you're going to be my disciples, or what Jesus says is a qualifier of disciple, you take up your cross and you follow me. That instead of using prayer to try to bend God to your will and get God to do what you want him to do, instead we use prayer as the instrument through which we say, okay, God, take me, bend my will to your will. Because here's the thing about obedience. Obedience means you're going to do something that you don't want to do. You're going to do something that initially you go, I don't want to do that. Otherwise, it's not obedience, it's compliance, right? If you're just complying with God, it means God just asked you to do something you already wanted to do. Obedience means when God asks you to do something that doesn't line up with your financial goals, or God asks you to do something that's going to make you a little uncomfortable, if God's going to ask you to stop doing something that's going to maybe bring shame on you because I can't hang out with you guys and do that anymore, that's obedience. When it starts having to change the way you live your life, change the way you do stuff, that's when your walk actually becomes obedience when it becomes something where you go, I don't know if I want to do that. Otherwise, it's compliance. So it's, are you asking God to change your will? Are you saying, God, will you be the potter, make me the clay? Or are you trying to go, okay, God, I did these things, now pay up? Totally different approach. Verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order 
of Melchizedek. And so this is the high priest's function to make atonement for sin. Jesus doesn't need to bring offering after offering for all the stuff you've done. Jesus became the offering. And because of him, he's the source of salvation. He made salvation possible for us because he submitted himself to the will of the Father. He became obedient. He gave up what he wanted, went to the cross, and now our salvation is complete. Big thing for the Hebrews and also for you and me. You can never do one thing to make yourself more saved. You can never do one thing to add to it because the work's done. It's been finished. There's no more offerings going to God to make you any more holy. It's done. There's nothing you could do that ever make God love you more. There's nothing my daughter could ever do that where she would come in and say, Dad, I got you these flowers. Will you love me more? I'd go, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. She doesn't do that hoping to get more love. She hopes it. She brings it to get approval for me to say, oh, that's awesome. Thank you. I love that. Oh, that's beautiful. Timothy tells us that we have that same approach to God. You can never be more accepted, but now we live a life that's approved, that we should strive to be obedient even when it's hard and we don't want to, when it, it doesn't line up with our goals maybe. We strive to be obedient because our approach to God is so different now. It's not an obligation. It's like a daughter coming to a father, like a son coming to a father going, hey, here's my life, and us wanting to receive back. Well done, good and faithful servant. I like that. That's awesome. That's what we want to hear from God. That's what we want to do with our lives as we give ourselves to him. And so we leave this train of thought for a moment. It's, we're going to pick it back up in chapter 7 to talk about walking away from the faith. And the author of Hebrews starts to sound a little ticked, but he's not. Okay, so let's read it. Verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So here's what he's saying. There's generation after generation a way that you think you approach God. You go to the high priest, you bring your offering, whether it be an ox or a lamb, you lay your hand on the head of that animal, you confess all of your sins, all the ones that you could possibly remember, but we're ignorant people and we forget some, and so the high priest covers those, but you just lay down every confession that you can on the head of this animal. The high priest will kill that animal, bring it into the, the Holy of Holies, give it over to God. That's what's gonna happen. That's what they're used to. It's very dramatic. It's very moving. There's a lot of music. It would happen annually. There's the Day of Atonement. It's a whole production. It's a whole culture. This was life. If you look at Exodus, this was, we have meal after meal. We have a set schedule. We approach God in these ways. And now everything is different. And you have some Hebrews who are on the fence where they go, I accept Jesus, but I also want to keep doing that because that's what we do. I mean, my kids are expecting this. Their friends are going to be there. This is, this is what we do. So should we go all the way with Jesus or should we go all the way back to priests and offer sacrifices? And like we just talked about, once Jesus has paid for all your sins, there's no more sacrifice needed for your sins. He's going to talk more about that in chapter 7. But verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Oracles of God is just a fancy way of saying Old Testament. That's just scripture. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, 
since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So he's saying to these people, you should be at this point in your walk where I don't have to have this conversation with you. You should be at this point in your walk where you can go to other people and say, man, we don't do sacrifices anymore because of Jesus. You should be at this point in your walk where you already know all this info. You can go out and share it with other people. And I think as Americans, we've developed a presupposition that's not great. We look for one of two things for us to become mature believers and also for people to get saved is it happens only right here. For us to become mature believers, it means coming to church on Sundays, on Wednesdays especially. And for people to get saved, you got to get them to come to church on a Sunday or a Wednesday would be great. If we could get them into church, then they could get saved and then I would become more mature. But here's what the Bible tells us. If you want to be a mature believer, there's two things you got to do. The first one is you got to talk the talk. You should be teachers. You guys, I need so many teachers in the three-year-olds class. Just kidding. <laughs> but legit, I know how many three-year-olds are in there right now. Crazy. We have just as many kids on Wednesday nights as we've had on Sunday mornings. It's insane. I'm so grateful for it. But here's the issue. If you come on Wednesday and Sunday, that means for two hours that week, they've definitely talked about Jesus. But what about the rest of the time? I would love it. If your kids did not see me as their pastor, but they saw you as their pastor, that you're the person who talks to them about Jesus, that every day there's something else that you could bring up with them about the Lord, about how God's working in your life, and it just becomes part of what you do. Every day it has to be brought up because, man, you know so much. He's talking to these people going, I guess we're going back to, you know, uh, milk again. Man, we're a church of solid food. Like, I can say that because Matt's not up here. Bro, 1 Peter's been wild. That's some of the best Bible teaching I've ever heard. And when I go to listen back to the old guys I used to listen to, they, it takes them like 20 minutes before they even open the Bible. And that's like cotton candy. It's entertaining. It's, it's fluff. It's, it's, a, it's encouraging. But it's not strong meat. You guys have been getting strong meat. You guys know enough. And you might say, well, I don't know how to talk to my kids about Jesus. Then you come talk to me. Because that's my job to help you. And I've got resources and I've got stuff for you and I'd love to talk to you more about it. But maybe you don't have kids. God has put a coworker in your life for you to have the door open to talk about Jesus. God is a spouse in your life. God has kids in your life. There are people that you have in your life that in order to be a mature believer, for you to go, okay, I want to be mature walking with Jesus, you have to talk the talk. But then the very last thing in this verse, the second thing you have to do to be a mature believer, end of verse 14, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You got to walk the walk. You got to live the life. You're distinguishing good from evil. And the way you do that is you choose to be obedient even when it's hard and I don't want to and it's going to make me uncomfortable and I don't want to talk to her because of this or I don't want to give up that thing because of what they'll think of me. If you want to be a mature believer... You got to talk the talk, and you got to walk the walk. And there are presuppositions that we bring about who God is and how God sees us and how we approach God. And there are people in your life that have all those things wrong, who think that they've made mistakes that God could never forgive. They think that God wants nothing to do with them. 
They believe all the lies of the enemy. And you know enough. You know enough to tell them about Jesus. If getting them here, great. But that's what you're for. The church in Acts was about getting together and encouraging and, and, and yes, let's do it. And then going out and sharing the gospel and walking the walk, talking the talk. That's what we got to do today because we have a good high priest where you fail and you blow it and he doesn't hold it against you. He says, I get it. Go back out there. Man, I know you messed up. And then your friends or your kids, they're going to see you messed up and it's not going to devastate you. It's not going to destroy you because your salvation did not hinge on that. Your salvation hinged on what Jesus already did. You didn't blow it because Jesus did that work. So Jesus, we pray we would be people who are constantly in light of the throne of grace, that we get to boldly approach it, that we can receive mercy and grace when we need help. That when we get into spots, we feel like, man, I've blown it. I pray that our initial reaction would be to run to you and not to run away from you. And by the way that we speak and by the way that we act, that people will be drawn to you, Jesus. Help us be teachers. Help us be people who discern good from evil by walking the walk. It's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming tonight.